Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. before you this morning thankful for your word and Lord we know that when your word goes forth that it will accomplish that which you will have purposed it God and so uh, we ask that you would speak through your word this morning that these would be your words not mine that these words uh, would be Lord living and active in our lives in our hearts that we would have ears to hear what you are saying So, Lord God, we ask that you would make much of yourself this morning through the proclamation of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We are continuing our study of the book of 1 Peter this morning. And 1 Peter is such a good book for us to be studying because our culture in general both Christians and non-Christians, we have a problem in understanding how to handle hardships, suffering, and pain, okay? And so 1 Peter is being written to give us hope in the midst of hardships. And so we are gonna continue to learn in this book that God many times takes our hardships, turns them into blessings, and fills them with meaning, And so then we learn that as Christians, we just don't endure hardships and pursue holiness, but that we actually pursue holiness by enduring hardships. And so let me give a a quick recap of the book so far, uh, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks. So verses 1 through 2 were an opening greeting that Peter gives. He's writing to both Jewish and Gentile Christians, and he addresses them as elect exiles. And we learn that as the people of God, we are exiles, we are sojourners, we are refugees, we are temporary residents in a foreign place here on earth. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we are treated as outsiders or treated as outcasts or feel like we don't belong. But not only are we just exiles, we are elect exiles. We are chosen. God has foreknown us. He has set his affections upon us and adopted us into a royal family. We are elect exiles. And then last week, we went through verses 3 through 12, which were all about praising God. 
praising God. Peter, in writing a letter to offer help to Christians going through hardships, he starts with this concept of worship. He says, praise God. He is reminding us that the remedy for our heavy hearts is for our hearts to do what they were created to do, and that is worship God. And so we saw then some things that we could worship God for, that according to God's great mercy, we have a new, we have a new hope, we have a new life, we have a new faith. And then we learn that we are going to face trials. We shouldn't be surprised when trials come our way in life. We know that they're temporary. They're only temporary. They're not eternal. And we learned that God strengthens our faith through the trials that we experience. And so now we arrive at verse 13. So if you're there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, look, look at it with me. It says, Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so human beings, anytime we hear a command or something we are to do, we immediately want to start doing, doing, doing. Okay, give me something to do and I'll do it. But this passage, while it does have some exhortations and commands that we're going to get to, we need to first understand that God's commands overflow from his grace and that what we are to do should be done in light of what God has done, okay? God's commands overflow from his grace and what we are to do should be done in light of what he has done. So look at the start of verse 13. Peter says, therefore... And I know you've heard this probably preached a lot, and even from me some, but anytime you come across the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what is therefore, therefore, okay? So Peter is saying, remember what I just wrote at the start of this letter. Remember that you are elect exiles, that you are chosen, that you are adopted into the family of God. You have a new life. You are born again as a child of God. You have a new hope for this eternal inheritance who God himself is our inheritance in, in paradise with him, right? And that we have a new faith that is being kept and guarded by the power of God and strengthened by the power of God. And this has all been given to us, not because of anything that we have earned or deserved, but according to God's great mercy. Therefore, now he's going to give us some ways that we live out this new life, that we live in this new reality as a child of God. But if you just looked at this passage in isolation, out of context, you could very easily become just a religious person thinking that these are things to do to try to get to God. But Peter is saying, no, no, no. God has gotten to us Therefore, okay, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus returns. Now, we experience God's grace every day of our lives, but there will be even more grace, even more undeserved favor that we will experience when Jesus returns and he makes all things new and we dwell with him. And so that eternal inheritance that we have in him in paradise is now our new living hope. And remember, when the Bible talks about hope, it's not just talking about wishful thinking or being optimistic, just wishing that something will happen in the future. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about having a confident expectation, 
a confident expectation. And we can have a confident expectation because we are not just wishing for something to happen in the future, but it is something that has been secured in the past through the resurrection of Jesus. And as he lives, so we live and so our hope lives. So we are to set our hope on Jesus's return. We are to set our hope fully on Jesus's return. But this is it's kind of a difficult thing for me to exhort or encourage or command you to do, right? Because really, this is, a, this is a heart issue. Hope is an emotion. It is a heart issue. I mean, what if I told you to just go out and, and go feel compassion for someone or go feel sad for someone or just go be happy, right? Those are hard things to just command of you, right? Because these are heart issues. These are emotions. Like, how can I just tell you to go set your hope fully on God, to just set your hope fully on Jesus's return? Well, Peter knows this, and he's going to give us some help as to how we are to set our hope fully on Jesus's return. Because look what he says. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Your mind and your heart were always meant to work together. Your mind serves your heart. What you think serves how you feel. God gave you a brain and a heart. He gave you an intellect and he gave you emotions and they were always meant to work in collaboration with one another. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Your mind serves your heart. So this is how you help your heart set its hopes and affections and expectations on Jesus. You prepare your minds for action and you are sober-minded. Now, prepare your minds for action in the original language literally means gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, which is just way too good of a phrase not to mention it this morning, okay? Gird up the loins of your mind, but stay with me, all right? I think it's painting a helpful, helpful picture at what he's trying to get at, okay? So in ancient times, before people wore uh, jeans or khakis, they had long robes or tunics. And so when they were about to get to work or do something that, that called them to action, whether it be to go battle or run or work, they would gird up their loins. They would take up their robes or tunics and tie it around their waist so that they were ready for action. And Peter is saying, in the same way, we are to gird up the loins of our mind. We are to get our minds ready for action instead of allowing them to be entangled by all the cares of the world. But our minds, just like our lives, are often entangled and cluttered by just all the desires and pursuits and all of our hopes and all of our stuff that we have pursued apart from Christ. And, and even non-Christians then have realized that our intellects and our lives are, have been entangled and cluttered by just all the stuff of life. And so recently, we've now seen the rise in popularity of what's called minimalism, okay? Minimalism is a movement that desires to live a more simple, less cluttered life. So maybe you've seen shows like Tiny Houses, right, where people get rid of all their big houses and all the stuff they have and their big mortgages, and they just live in tiny houses. Or, or some minimalists will be really disciplined and say, I'm only going to own 50 things or less. And so they essentially get rid of all the non-essentials and just live on the basics. But living in our culture, it is so easy for our lives to just become cluttered and entangled by stuff. 
I mean, our minds are entangled by stuff. Think about all the time your mind spends just thinking about stuff, either wanting more stuff, thinking about how to take care of the stuff you have, wishing you had someone else's stuff, or worried that you're going to lose your stuff, right? I mean, our minds are just entangled by all the stuff of life. And here are some stats from the Becoming Minimalist website that I think reveal just where we're at as a culture and a society about how we are just entangled with stuff, okay? Here's some of these stats, okay. The United States has upward of 50,000 storage facilities, more than five times the number of Starbucks. Currently, there is 7.3 square feet of self-storage space for every man, woman, and child in the nation. Thus, it is physically physically possible that every American could stand all at the same time under the total canopy of self-storage roofing. We could all be under a roof of all of just our self-storage facilities, okay? The average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but plays with just 12 daily. 3% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys consumed globally. Most of those are at our house. Uh, the average American woman owns 30 outfits, one for every day of the month. In 1930, that figure was nine. Now, ladies, I'm just reading stats right now. I'm not making a stance on how many outfits you should own, but husbands, you're welcome. Okay. Americans spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches than on higher education. Shoes, jewelry, and watches more than higher education. Shopping malls outnumber high schools. And 93% of teenage girls rank shopping as their favorite pastime. Okay, last one. Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods, items they do not need. $1.2 trillion annually. We've got some stuff, and it is cluttering and entangling our lives, our minds, and our hopes. And so at the core of this concept of minimalism is really this intentional focus on things that value most and getting rid of all the other distractions. And one writer was even talking about how this process of externally decluttering their life did allow them to feel internally decluttered and actually allowed for them to deal with some heart issues. But our culture, we have just been so overloaded with stuff. Our minds and all the different desires and all the different hopes and, and, and everything have just entangled and cluttered our lives that even Christians now and non-Christians are having this desire to simplify. And, and listen, this is a biblical concept. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to go out and live in a tiny house, okay? But part of preparing our minds for action is simplifying what our minds are set on. Getting our minds off of all the stuff of life and setting our minds on God. This is what John Calvin said. He said, our minds are held entangled by the passing cares of this world and by vain desires so that they rise not upward to God. Whosoever then really wishes to have this hope, let him learn to first place in the first place, to disentangle himself from the word, world and gird up his mind so that it may not turn aside to vain affections. We are to gird up the loins of our mind. We are to disentangle. We are to simplify what we are setting our minds on. We are also to be sober-minded. Now, yes, this means that we are to not be literally drunk, but also this is referring to not being figuratively drunk, okay? Our minds are to be alert, 
In order to set our hope fully on Jesus, our minds must be disciplined and they must be alert and ready for action. And when we allow our minds to wander, they can become intoxicated by lust. Our minds can be clouded by greed. And when we're not filling our minds with truth, we can live delusionally like we're inebriated and our heart, listen, will follow suit with what our mind is thinking. So for our hope to be fully set on Christ, we must understand that this will take some discipline from our minds to obey verses like Colossians 3, 2, which says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Be prepared for action, be sober-minded, and when God calls for you to obey, be ready and don't be so entangled or intoxicated by all the cares, desires, and distractions you have allowed into your life. Church, we need to prayerfully consider how God is calling us to untangle our minds and to simplify what we are setting our minds on and to keep the main thing the main thing. And if your hope is not fully on Christ and his return, it is likely you have allowed things into your life that are distracting you and inhibiting your mind from being set on him. Look now in verse 14 of 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 15, as he who called you, is just another great reminder that God is the initiator of salvation, and he who called you is holy. God is holy. Holy means set apart or separate from. It means pure and righteous. The very essence of God's being is that he is a holy God. He is the holy one. There is none like him. In Isaiah 6, we see the angels call God the holy, holy, holy one, meaning that he is absolutely holy and he is the source of all holiness. And look at verse 14, we're, called, we're reminded that we are children of God. As children, we are called to be like our Father who is holy. We are called to embrace our new family identity as children of God and to be holy in all our conduct like our Father is holy. And to be holy in all of our conduct means both our external actions as well as our internal thought life and heart issues, okay? So we are to be holy in how we conduct business. We are to be holy in our sexuality. We are to be holy as a parent. We are to be holy as a neighbor. We are to be holy in how we handle our finances. We are to be holy in our thought life. And we are to follow the example of the Father and to be holy. Ephesians 5.1 emphasizes this point as well. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be holy. Be imitators of God. Now, this seems like a crazy high standard, doesn't it? I mean, because I don't know about you, but I'm still battling sin in my heart and my mind every day, and every day there's this, there's this tension, right? I have this desire to be an obedient child and to follow after God, and yet I have this pull to be conformed to the passions of this world and pursue other things instead of Christ. And so maybe you're reading this and hearing this, like you're hearing me tell you to be holy, and you're probably like, 
I mean, thanks a lot, Pastor. That is an impossible task. Be holy? Are you kidding me? I think I will go find a church that just lowers the bar just a little bit. Maybe says, be a decent person or just be moral, be nice, be kind, right? But be holy. I mean, come on. We are surrounded by temptations to conform to the world around us. And God says that both our external actions and our internal actions should be set apart for God, should be pure and righteous. I mean, this this seems like an impossible task. But listen, church, in the context of this letter and remembering what the therefore was there for, and remembering that we are children of God, not according to anything that we've done or earned, This is not a command to just go try and be better, okay? Don't walk out of here this morning and you hear me say, go be holy. This is not a command to just go try harder or just be better. Like, just be holy or just stop sinning, right? This is not what I'm saying. This is not the heart of what this verse is saying either. The command to be holy is not saying go be better. It's saying go be who you are in Christ. Go be who you are in Christ. Follow me. Enjoy me. And maybe maybe an example will kind of help this point stick and help you understand what I'm trying to say here. So let's say I'm playing football with Jackson, okay? Jackson's my oldest son. He's five years old. I've already talked about playing football because that's all I do outside of of here and being at the hospital working, okay? We play football together. Uh, So let's say I'm going to play football against Jackson one-on-one. Now, side note, sometimes I've been letting him win, sometimes I win, because we're trying to teach him to be a good winner and a good loser. So, uh, you know, sometimes I'll play easy, sometimes I'll play hard, and then we just deal with the fallout and try to parent through what's happening, okay? Uh, But let's say for this example, let's say I'm going to play 100%. Like, I'm going to go full out as hard as I can. And now, I don't mean to brag, but compared to a five-year-old, I am really good at tackle football, okay? There might be some underlying pride in there. You can pray for me, okay? But compared to a five-year-old, I am just awesome at tackle football, okay? So, what's that? Oh, I don't, I don't lose. Yeah, I don't lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay, so let's say I'm about to play Jackson and I'm gonna go full out 100% as hard as I can, okay? Now let's say Jamin walks out. He's three years old, okay? And I'm like, hey Jamin, you come be on my team and I want you to come score a touchdown, okay? Now let's say Jamin starts getting really anxious about this and fearful and he starts really being worried like, how am I supposed to score a touchdown? Like, I don't even know if I can throw the ball. I don't think I can run very fast. What if I trip and fall? What if I get tackled? What if I get hurt? What if I don't know all the audibles and hand signals you call at the scrimmage line, right? I mean, like he might be just hearing all these anxieties and fears come upon him when he hears this command to come score a touchdown. It might seem to him like that is an impossible task. Are these not ridiculous fears and worries or excuses? Because I called him to be on my team. Which just by me calling him to be on my team has it not guaranteed him the victory. All he has to do is just let me hike him the ball and follow my lead blocking all the way to the end zone. I'm pretty sure that five-year-old on the other side of the scrimmage line will come nowhere close to even touching Jamin, okay? 
All Jamin has to do is hold the ball and get his happy run on all the way to the end zone, okay? Now, do you guys know about a three-year-old's happy run? They lead with their belly and they giggle all the way, okay? That's a three-year-old happy run, all right? So all he has to do is hold on to the ball and follow his dad all the way to the end zone. So does me telling Jamin to go score a touchdown seem like such an impossible task? when understood that he is on my team. And what I'm calling him to is just to follow me and enjoy all the benefits and blessings that come with playing on dad's team. Let me share a a quote to you from Kevin DeYoung in regards to being called to holiness. He says this, Holiness is not ultimately about living up to a moral standard. It's about living in Christ and living out of our real, vital union with him. Holiness is not ultimately just living up to a moral standard. It is about living in Christ and living out of our real, vital union with him. You shall be holy as I am holy is a call to live out our new identity as children of God and to follow after him. To be separate from sin, and yes, to be set apart for God, but we can rest in the fact that holiness was the purpose to which we were called, and what God has purposed will succeed. Ephesians, hear this from Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. Holiness was the purpose to which we were called, and what God has purposed will succeed. If I call Jamin to come score a touchdown, he will score a touchdown. Oswald Chambers also weighs in on some of this as well. He says, God, only, God has only one intended destiny for mankind, holiness. His only goal is to produce saints. God is not some eternal blessing machine for people to use, and he did not come to save us out of pity. He came to save us because he created us to be holy. And then we must understand that this process of pursuing holiness, it is a process. But God has given us a perfect example in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we can follow after. He has then empowered us to pursue and follow after him by sending us his spirit. And when we repent of sin and trust in Christ, we are justified and declared righteous in God's sight, and our salvation is secure, and then we are set onto a lifelong journey of following him and being transformed by him. And while sin no longer has dominion over us, its presence is still here, but we have a hope that the work that God has started in us, he will complete. Holiness was the purpose to which we were called, and what God has purposed will succeed. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are to conduct ourselves with a fear of God. 
Now, this is not a popular topic to always talk about, and it's definitely probably not how most people would think to draw large, large crowds to a church plant, right? I mean, people want to talk about the love of God. They want to talk about the closeness of God. People want to talk about the gentleness and patience of God, all of which are true and we will talk about, but he is also a God that we should be in awe of and that we should have a healthy fear of. But most of us, we don't fear him. And so instead, we fear everything else in life. I mean, aren't our lives just full of anxieties and fears? I mean, we fear not having enough money. We fear people we love dying. We fear terrorist attacks. We fear germs. We fear small spaces, we fear heights, we fear bugs, we fear animals, we fear glitter, right? At least I know I do, it's the worst, okay? And here, listen, here's a new fear that is now being developed. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. It's called nomophobia, nomophobia. It's the fear of being without your cell phone, okay? This is a real thing, it's really happening, all right? It, this is causing anxiety and fear for a lot of people when they don't have their cell phone within reach. Okay, so nomophobia, short for no mobile phone phobia. Okay, that's real. I did not make that up. That is a real, that's really happening. Okay, and even some of you, you're probably like reaching for your pocket, just making sure you can touch your cell phone, just kind of calming yourself, knowing it's right there. Okay, that's okay. We'll start a support group or something for you. Okay, but we human beings, we fear anything and everything. And I would like to propose that one reason, now not the only reason we have fears, but one reason anxiety and fear seems to be so widespread today is that we have lost our awe and our fear of God. And, and what has remedied my own anxieties and my own fears have been those times when, you, when you're in the midst of, of fear or anxiety, and I'm just feeling the heaviness of the anxiety and the crippling effects of the fear in my life. God has reminded me through his word that there is someone I should fear, and that is him. And he's like, you're, you're worried and anxious and fearful about a lot of things. You're supposed to fear someone but it's not what you're worried about. You are to fear me. And if I'm fearing God, then I can fear not in all other areas of life. That's why the Proverbs say in Proverbs 19.23, it says, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. So hear, hear me, church. We were made to fear God and live life, not live without God and fear life, okay? We were made to fear God and live life, not live without God and fear life. As children of God, we fear God. Now, why does our passage say that we should fear God? It gives a few reasons here. We are to fear God because first, he is holy. He is the holy, holy, holy one. He is pure, righteous, set apart, separate from us. He is high and lifted up. He is infinitely and perfectly holy, and he is the source of all holiness. There is none like him. He dwells in unapproachable light, and his goodness is so pure and powerful that just like light, it would obliterate any darkness in its path. We are to fear God because he is holy. Now, we are also to fear God because he's our Father. 
And he's a good father. He's not an angry, abusive father like maybe some earthly fathers some of you have had. No, it's not a paralyzing terror of God that we have, but it is a healthy fear and awe of him that he is our God and that he is our father, and he is a loving father that disciplines and corrects his children because he loves them. So I don't discipline my boys because I am mean, cruel, or angry. I discipline them because I love them, and this should cause in them a healthy fear and respect of me as their father. We are to fear God as our Father. Well, why else are we to fear God? We are to fear God because he judges impartially. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, yes, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But we are also told that those that are in Christ, that our verdict has already been announced and that we are justified by faith. We are declared right with God through faith in Christ. We know that Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. So for those that are in Christ, there will be no condemnation there, for the verdict has already been declared. But... Our faithfulness will be on display, and we will receive rewards when we stand before God. So we should fear God because he is holy. We should fear God because he is a loving father who disciplines and corrects. We should fear God as one that we are going to have to stand before one day. And we should fear despising his love for us. And his love for us was displayed by the precious blood of Christ. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We were ransomed, redeemed, and bought back by the precious blood of Christ. We should fear despising his love for us. This is precious blood, more precious than silver or gold or anything else here on earth. It is so precious to us because it was our creator humbling himself, coming to earth and giving up his life to save us. And it is so precious because through it, salvation has been accomplished and given to us. And it is so precious because even now, all that it is accomplishing for us. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we now have access to God. We have the promise of eternal life with him. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ. And the blood of Jesus is so precious because it has ransomed us from our futile ways of life. It has rescued us from our former passions and worthless pursuits. It bought us out of a life of slavery and sin to now a life with God. It ransomed us from the captivity of our worthless ways. And it rescues us from sin and brings us to God that we might be holy as God is holy. It is precious.
precious blood. You should fear despising God's love. You should fear spitting in the face of the one who bought you out of slavery. You should fear turning from the one who paid your ransom to get you out of captivity. We should fear God because he is holy. We should fear God because he is our father. We should fear God because he is our judge. And we should fear despising his love for us. And as we conclude this morning's sermon, I want to share with you a little bit about one of the songs that we're going to sing after communion. Be Thou My Vision is a hymn that was originally a poem. It was written 1,500 years ago by an old Irish monk. And much later on, it was put to music to the tune that we now know today. But the original poem was written by an Irish monk who was blind. And it was a prayer that God would be our vision. That he would be what our minds are set on. That he would be our inheritance. That he would be our delight. That he would be our father. The call to be holy is not a call to go be better. It's not a call to go do this and don't do that. It's not a call to go be a good rule keeper. The call to be holy is a call to simplify. Before Christ, our minds were pulled in a million different directions. We've been running after pleasures all over. Our minds have been entangled with all the stuff and cares of life. Our hopes have been set upon everything except for Christ. Our fears and anxieties have been on everything except for God. The call to be holy is to take your eyes off of all these other things and set them on Christ. Peter is not telling you to just go be better. He's saying, go be who you are in Christ. It is a call to follow God and to live in the reality of what has been accomplished for us and what is being accomplished in us. And so here in a few minutes after communion, may we too echo the words of this blind Irish monk who had a desire to not be pulled in all different directions, but for God to be his everything, for God to be his vision. And so may God be our vision, our hope, and our inheritance. And church, we will be holy because he is holy. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this new identity that you have, have given to us, Lord, that we can be your children, that we can be a part of your family. And God, I ask that we would live out this reality of who we are in Christ, that we would follow hard after you, that we would disentangle, God, our minds from all of our hopes, passions, and desires that we have pursued apart from you, and that we could just fully set our minds on you, God. Lord, I pray against anyone that might be feeling like they're failing you, God. I ask that you would give them comfort and peace and help them know that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. 
and help them be reminded that they are your child and what the purpose was that you called them to, that purpose will succeed, God. Because we know what your word says from 1 John 3, that we are your children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when you appear, we shall be like you, because we shall see you as you are. Lord, may you be our vision. May we behold you. May we enjoy you, God. I pray this in Jesus' name.